going on. So as I said a few moments ago, uh, this is Bob Doppelt. Um, and uh, one thing I, I didn't mention in my introduction about uh, his, um, his beautiful work with sustainability and climate change uh, is that uh, he wrote a book um, that I have found really a great uh, great piece of work uh, called From Me to We, The Five Transformational Commitments Required to Rescue the Planet, Your Organization, and Your Life. Uh, and what, what Bob did um, was um, take some Dharma principles, five Dharma principles that uh, that he feels are the key ones to uh, shift our consciousness if we're going to um, have a meaningful response to uh, what's lying ahead and climate change and use it as an opportunity to um, to wake up. Um, and uh, he did it, he put it in non-jargon language uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's a beautiful book that uh, Bill McKibben praises highly uh, and uh, many other people. And as I said, for years, uh, Bob has been a practitioner. And uh, in last decade or so, how many, two decades? Uh, mainly focusing on... Um, uh, on sustainability and making this a better planet. And when I said a, f a few uh, earlier this year, I said, gee, it's so wonderful that your Dharma world and your, and your um, sustainability uh, world have come together. Uh, he looked at me in the eye and said, James, 
the Dharma holds the key if this is going to be a meaningful and a, a fruitful shift. Uh, and that's when I said, I want all the teachers in our community to hear that right from you. So, uh, And he's done a beautiful job with that. So nice to have you back here, Bob. Well, thank you. Um, it's nice to be back here with all of you. Uh, and I will get this right eventually. Um, this is very similar to climate change where all sorts of things go wrong and you really don't know what's happening, right? You know, Or what the outcome's going to be. All we know is something's not working right. Can you switch to it? This is the fourth take. Are we ready? Um, my name is Bob Doppelt. Uh, I direct uh, the Resource Innovation Group. We're a nonprofit uh, affiliated with Willamette University in Oregon, where I'm on faculty part-time. But also, uh, um, before that, I was at the University of Oregon for 10 years, directing an organization called the Climate Leadership Initiative. Um, and so we have a uh, one foot in academia and one foot out, and we've been working on climate change issues around the country um, for about 15 years. Um, and it led me to uh, a number of, uh, of conclusions about where we are and the kind of steps we need to take to really begin to address this issue. And I want to share some of that today. It, it, it sort of led me on a, a long path uh, back to uh, connecting with James. James and I met uh, 28 years ago or something like that at a retreat, a couple of retreats, um, and uh, uh, reconnected uh, as a result of... of uh, the book that I had published and, and some other things. So I'm going to talk about that tonight. Um, but the first thing I want to do is ask you all to uh, tell me or tell each other how it is you are part of the Earth's climate. How is it that you're part or are you part of the Earth's climate? Anybody? Go ahead. Oh, do we have a... It's just simple enough that I breathe. <laughs> you breathe, okay. Thank you. Why I breathe that... in oxygen and I exhale carbon dioxide. Okay, right on target. Um, <laughs> we didn't even talk about that beforehand to tee that up. Go ahead. We're a smart group. Yeah. Um. I use and I use up resources of of my planet, you know, whether it's uh, water or any of the resources. Okay. Go ahead. I'm a proud driver of a Prius, and so I think that I, I thereby help the planet a little bit. 
So let me, let me rephrase the question then, because this was a trick question. <laughs> um, it, by driving a Prius, how does that make you part of the climate? Well, it, 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 uh, it, I, I don't therefore you know, contribute so much in the way of emissions, etc. when I go about my you know, daily activities that involve driving. So it's, uh, I'm uh, not contributing so greatly to the problems of the environment. So you're not affecting the climate. Necessarily I, no, as not much. as not as much. As much, right? Okay. And I'm also a vegetarian, which means that I don't eat meat, which means that I don't contribute to methane being put into the atmosphere and thereby causing a problem with the ozone layer. Right. Okay. Right. Anybody else want to take a shot? My son recently graduated in engineering, and I had him do a calculation for me once upon a time. If you take any character in history long enough ago so their their breath has swirled all around the atmosphere that every breath that i take every single breath i take has approximately we may be off by an order of magnitude something like half a million molecules that every person in history ever breathed there you go there you go and in a several hundred years if there are people still to breathe the same will be true of my breaths right okay i saw one other hand here thank you well, I'm aware that we are lit mostly by the use of oil or gas producing the energy that lights our buildings. Right. So the answer to that question is all of the above. <laughs> but the first answer was really uh, uh, central to the question that I asked, to how are you part of the climate? When you sit and meditate and you follow your breath, every time you're breathing in, you're breathing in what? Oxygen. How many of you know where the oxygen was produced? Where is your, the oxygen that you're breathing right now that allows your life to exist, where was that produced? Plants? Are you sure? Oceans. There you go. About 75% of the oxygen you're breathing right this second that is giving you life, was produced through a process called photosynthesis in single-cell green algae in marine environments, estuaries and oceans, and the other 25% roughly in vegetation all around you. So as you breathe in, in addition to sort of following your breaths and concentrating your mind, what you're also doing is, is following through on your part, your contribution to the climate system right? Complex interactions occurring all around the globe are creating the energy that are allowing you to live right this second. Then when you breathe out, what happens? We heard it before. You're breathing out CO2, carbon dioxide. What happens to the carbon dioxide that you're breathing out? That's right. So it... So the plants and ocean resources are absorbing that, are sequestering it and converting it again. That is the natural carbon cycle that has existed on Earth for thousands of years, and we're part of it, all right? Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. And if you don't believe that the oxygen you're breathing uh, at every moment produced um, in these complex processes 
is the key to life, I invite everyone to hold your breath for about five minutes, right? Um, so we are intimately uh, connected to, we are uh, dependent on, we are part of the climate, part of the Earth systems in general. But unfortunately, we humans have this uh, fantasy that we are freestanding, independent beings that somehow exist outside of those processes. And that has led to a number of problems. And that's one of the problems is global climate change. And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. Um, for about uh, 10,000 years on Earth, we've had a pretty stable climate. There's been some ups and downs that mostly have to do with the when the Earth moves a little bit further away from the sun and then moves a little bit back closer. But the, 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 the climate has been relatively stable, and it's in that 10,000 years that human civilization developed, that agriculture was able to develop, et cetera. What we see now took off then. Uh, and that stable period was caused by a relatively stable amount of greenhouse gases that surround the earth and form a blanket keeping the earth warm. And by greenhouse gases, I mean a complex mixture of carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide, methane, and a few others. And that mixture has been, from the scientific perspective, called between 200 and 280 parts per million, the, the mixture of those gases in pure oxygen around the atmosphere. And it forms a blanket. So solar radiation comes in from the sun, comes through that blanket of, gra of gases, and hits the Earth's surface. Some of it is then absorbed by plants and other sorts of uh, processes. Much of it is actually reflected back out into space. That blanket of gases that are surround the Earth trap some of the gas, the heat that's being radiated back, and just enough of that heat, in fact, to keep Earth at just the right temperature to support life. And the rest goes back through that blanket of gases out into, into the atmosphere, out into space. So that 280 to 200 to 280 parts per million of greenhouse gases has been just the right amount to allow the temperature to exist, to stabilize the climate, allow life to exist. But now, over the last 150 years, we've added greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. We're now at 400 parts per million, 40% or more increase, and rising quickly. Consequently, there's a bigger blanket around the, the Earth, and it's capturing more heat, and that's what climate change is about. And we all live in a very narrow temperature window. Think of yourself when your temperature is roughly 98.6, and when you get a one-degree temperature increase, you start to feel pretty ill, right? And when you're at two or three or five, Actually, if you have a five or a six degree temperature for a long period of time, not a good thing, right? You're not sure you'll even survive. Well, we've already had, the same thing is true for all life on Earth, including the planet as a whole. And we've had already about a uh, 1.6 degree, a little over one, uh, one degree uh, Fahrenheit temperature increase. We are on a path, unless big changes are made, to a six degrees Fahrenheit temperature increase Four, deg uh, four degrees Celsius, roughly, which will be essentially the end of human civilization. And by being on a path, what I mean is 
the uh, the warming we're seeing now is the result of emissions we've put into the atmosphere 20 and 30 and 40 years ago. So the uh, in the problems, the more weather extremes that we're seeing all over the world, more frequent and extreme weather seem all over the world, is actually the result of the greenhouse gas emissions that were emitted in the 50s and 60s and 40s. And what we're emitting today, the impacts are going to show up 20 and 30 years from now. So uh, we have a, a very serious problem on our hand, a very serious problem on our hands, uh, a problem that most of us aren't aware of uh, as we go about our daily activities. And uh, on the other hand, we have an opportunity to make some big changes. We can actually reduce climate change, I think we can, uh, to manageable levels. We're not going to eliminate it. At this point in time, we're too, too, down far the path, too far down the path. But we can get a handle on it. And I want to share one way to, uh, uh, to do that uh, today. Um, and I'll think after we uh, talk of this, a little bit about this, I'll give you some, some very specific suggestions as to what you might want to do so to leave you on a, on a high note. Um, but what is uh, this can be a very sobering topic, right? Anybody feel a little... You know, a little angst here. Um, and uh, as the Dharma tells us, we can only begin to adopt a path towards the solutions of a problem once we acknowledge the suffering that we're feeling. And so it's important to understand what's really happening. Uh, and as part of that, uh, James invited me to, to talk to the uh, Vipassana Teachers Council last June. Uh, about this issue, and a, a marvelous collaboration has evolved with teachers around the world to try to think about how we can explain what the Dharma offers to all of us and all of our sanghas and the general public about the causes of climate change and the path towards a solution. And as a result of uh, a tremendous amount of work, uh, we have this, this collaboration has produced a statement that I would like to read to you. Uh, in its full, it's about three pages. I'll try to read slowly um, so you can read it. Um, but I'd like you, to, if you would, to listen to it. And as you listen, you might even want to, if you're willing, just close your eyes and sort of uh, let it come into your, your being rather than thinking about it. Sense, get a sense of how it feels in your, in your sense, rather than just uh, uh, addressing it from a, an intellectual perspective. And then we'll talk about the sensations you have and what's going on inside you after we're done. So I'm just going to read this for a few minutes, um, and it's uh, titled The Earth as Witness. It is now signed by 170 Dharma teachers from around the world. And it begins with, Today, humanity faces an unprecedented crisis of almost unimaginable magnitude. Escalating climate change is altering the global environment so drastically as to force the Earth into a new geological age. Unprecedented levels of suffering for all life on Earth, including human, will result. Significant reductions in greenhouse gases and other actions will be needed to reduce climate change to manageable levels. But more fundamental changes are also needed, 
And this is where we can draw guidance from the rich resources of the Buddha's teaching, the Dharma. This statement briefly describes core Buddhist insights into the root causes of the climate crisis and suggests ways to minimize its potentially tragic consequences. As a starting point, the Dharma states that to formulate meaningful solutions to any problem, we must first acknowledge the truth of our suffering. As shocking and painful as it may be, we must recognize that without swift and dramatic reductions in fossil fuel use and major efforts to increase carbon sequestration, global temperatures will rise close to or beyond 2 degrees Celsius. 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. This increase will lead to the injury and death for millions of people worldwide and the extinction of many of the Earth's species. Millions more will experience severe trauma and stress that threaten their physical, emotional, and psychological well-being. These stresses will, in turn, trigger social and political unrest. In a grave injustice, low-income communities, poor nations, and people systematically subjected to oppression and discrimination who contributed little to climate change will initially be harmed the most. Even worse, as frightening as it is, if we fail to make fundamental changes in our energy, manufacturing, transportation, forestry, agriculture, and other systems, along with our consumption patterns with utmost urgency, In mere decades, irreversible climate shifts will occur that undermine the very pillars of human civilization. Only by recognizing these truths can we adopt a meaningful path toward solutions. The Dharma teaches us the origin of our suffering. The majority of the world's climate scientists are unequivocal that on the external physical plane, Climate climate change is caused by the historic and ongoing use of fossil fuels and the greenhouse gases they generate when burned. Destructive land management practices, such as clearing forests, also contribute to reducing nature's capacity to sequester carbon. The Dharma informs us, however, that craving, aversion, and delusion within the human mind are the root causes of vast human suffering. Just as these mental factors have throughout history led to the oppression, abuse, and exploitation of indigenous people and others outside the halls of wealth and power, craving, aversion, and delusion are also the root causes of climate change. Climate change is perhaps, is perhaps humanity's greatest teacher yet about these mental forces when left unchecked in ourselves and in our institutions, and how they cause harm to other people and the living environment. Led by industrialized nations, the desire for ever more material wealth and power has resulted in the relentless destruction of land and water, excess use of fossil fuels, massive amounts of solid and toxic waste, and other practices that are disrupting the Earth's climate. However, by acknowledging and addressing these internal mental drivers, we can begin to resolve the external causes of climate change. The Dharma offers hope by teaching us that it is possible to overcome the detrimental forces 
of craving, aversion, and delusion. We can use the climate crisis as a catalyst to acknowledge the consequences of our own craving for more and more material wealth and the pursuit of power and realize we must change our assumptions, attitudes, and behaviors. We can use the climate crisis as a catalyst to educate ourselves about planetary processes so that we understand that the Earth has ecological limits and thresholds that must not be crossed. By learning from our mistaken beliefs and activities, we can create more equitable, compassionate, and mindful societies that generate individual and collective well-being while reducing climate change to manageable levels. Finally, the Dharma prescribes a pathway of principles and practices we can follow to minimize climate change and the suffering it causes. The first principle is wisdom. From this point forward in history, we must all acknowledge not only the external causes of climate change, but the internal mental, dri mental drivers as well and their horrific consequences. To be wise, we must also, individually and as a society, adopt the firm intention to do whatever is necessary, no matter what the cost, to reduce climate change to manageable levels and over time restabilize the planet's climate. The second Dharma principle is ethical conduct, which is rooted in the compassionate concern for all living beings in the vast web of life. We need to make a firm moral commitment to adopt ways of living that protect the climate and help restore the Earth's ecosystems and living organisms. In our personal lives, we should recognize the value of contentment and sufficiency and realize that after a certain modest level, additional consumption, material wealth, and power will not bring happiness. To fulfill our wider moral responsibility, we must join with others, stand up to the vested interests that oppose change, and demand that our economic, social, and political systems and institutions be fundamentally altered so they protect the climate and offer nurturance and support for all of humanity in a just and equitable manner. We must insist that governments and corporations contribute to a stable climate and a healthy environment for all people and cultures worldwide, now and in the future. We must further insist that specific, scientifically credible, global emission reduction targets be set and means adopted to effectively monitor and enforce them. The third Dharma principle, and the one that makes all of the others possible, is mindfulness, or mind control. This offers a way to heighten our awareness of, and then to regulate, our desires and emotions and the thoughts and behaviors they generate. By continually enhancing our awareness, we can increasingly notice when we are causing harm to others, the climate, or ourselves, and strengthen our capacity to rapidly shift gears and think and act constructively. Mindfulness increases awareness of our own inherent interdependency with other people and the natural environment and of values that enhance human dignity rather than subordinate 
people, animals, and nature to the craving for more material wealth and power. As we awaken to the responsibility to follow the path described in the Dharma to help us protect and restore the planet and its inhabitants, we may feel awed by the immensity of the challenge. We should take heart, however, in the power of collective action. Buddhists can join with with others in their sanghas, and our sanghas can join hands and hearts with other religious and spiritual traditions, as well as with secular movements focused on promoting change. In this way, we will support each other as we make the necessary shifts in perspectives, lifestyles, and economic and institutional systems required to reduce climate change to manageable levels. History shows that with concerted, unified, collective efforts, changes that at one time seemed impossible have time and again come to pass. When we come together to celebrate our love for the natural world and all of the beings that inhabit it, and when we take a stand to counter the forces of craving, aversion, and delusion, we reclaim our own inner stability and strength and live closer to the truth, closer to the Dharma. Together, we may seek to ensure that our descendants and fellow species inherit inherit a livable planet. Individually and collectively, we will be honoring the great legacy of the Dharma and fulfill our heart's deepest wish to serve and protect all life. Would anybody like to share what's going on within you or what went on within you as you heard this? Anybody want to share anything that's happening right now? anything stand out as you heard it? As I listened to it, I actually felt more hopeful. I could make a difference. I felt energized. I started thinking through, oh, what could I do? And, you know, started reviewing various things that I uh, use and do, and so how, could I, how can I do better? Anybody else experience anything like that? Okay. Anybody else have other reactions? I thought that it, uh, it it reminded me that one person really can make a difference, but also uh, it sounded very first world to me, uh, and I've, I've seen a lot of people around the world who live for today, and they don't really have the luxury of this type of thought, so I just wonder what you think about that. Right. It's a very good point. Um, did you want to say something? Uh, actually, uh, let me respond to that and then talk about some solutions here. Um, the uh, 
the the document actually uh, what what I've just read to you is uh, I don't know somewhere between the uh, 30th to 130th rendition of the document as it was being written. Uh, again, with uh, 30 or more teachers from all over the world with different perspectives, um, that uh, it would it kept changing and to to reflect all that. And one of the feed pieces of feedback we got in an early document was it was very Western focused and wealthy Western focused, and so it was changed substantially to 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 reflect that. Um, and uh, I'm not sure we captured the, uh, everything, but we also decided we couldn't capture. Uh, everyone's perspective from all over the world. Uh, we could do as best as we can. Uh, uh, but uh, the, the, there were two goals in writing this document. The first is to inform all of you, that is to say, our sanghas all over the world, about this issue and how the Dharma uh, uh, helps us understand the causes. If there was ever an issue that is a Dharma issue, it is climate change. Yet, for many of us, we believe this is not a Dharma issue. That's a, it's a political issue. When we walk in here, this is about our own internal process. But in fact, it is our internal processes that in fact have created this external problem. So there, this is the ultimate Dharma issue. And I'll say if we don't address it through the principles described in the Dharma, we're going to have a very tough time ahead. Uh, so one goal is to inspire all of you and all other members of sanghas around the, the world to engage in solutions. And there are individual level solutions, um, uh, and uh, and they can they they can be implemented and they can make a big difference. And let me just give you one example. About ten years ago, my wife and I bought uh, a new house, not a new house, an old old house, a new place to live. Uh, and uh, that was sort of a uh, not not very nicely built, and so I spent the first three years on my hands and knees with lots of scars, putting in new insulation and installing new windows and doing all sorts of things. We had the energy bills from the people who we bought the house from, so we were able to compare our new energy bills with the previous ones, and we cut our energy cost, therefore our emissions for the for the house, by about forty percent through that process. And mostly it was because it was an old, leaky house. Um, but then we thought, that's just not enough. That's a good start. Glad we did it. Save some money. Um, so then we said, we looked around and we, we thought about what is it that we're doing personally just out of wanting to, to be, have things easy, our craving for, for uh, comfort, and et cetera, that we really don't need. So we did an, uh, an assessment of the entire house and looked at all the electronic gizmos we had, and we had them everywhere. Uh, and we said, what do we really need? And it turns out we needed about a fifth of them. And then we asked, what of those are on constantly? And it turns out we had lights in back rooms. We'd only in the back room about once every two weeks. You know, it was a spare room when somebody came over, et cetera. So we, first of all, recycled or reused all of the electronic stuff that we didn't need, and then we unplugged the rest of it, okay, unless we were using it. We even unplugged now the, the uh, toaster, even though we use it every morning. We unplug it, the, the hot water heater, et cetera, the hot water uh, for, for tea. Uh, and we cut our energy use by another about 15%. We're down to about 60, 60% we've cut it. Then we put up a solar system, a solar electrical system. Now we 
own our house. If you don't own your facility, you may not be able to do that. Uh, and we have very good solar access. We bought the house with that, and so there's no trees in the way. There's no other building. So not everybody can do that, but we put up a solar system and a solar hot water system for our shower, et cetera, and we basically got off the grid, okay? Uh, and we figured we're going to pay that off in about seven years. So if we can do it, although we have the, the financial capacity to do it, we, had the, we owned our home, we, we had solar access, uh, it just gives you a sense that much of our energy use, in this country at least, in the industrialized nations, uh, is frivolous and wasted. And if we can just become aware of that, again, again, increase our mindfulness of what we're doing uh, and take steps, we will make a big difference. Just look around Berkeley and San Francisco and Oakland tonight and look at the immense number of lights that are on. How many are really, really necessary? When I first moved to Oregon in the early 70s to, to go to uh, grad school, we had a governor named Tom McCall. I don't know if anybody remembers that name, but uh, he was a Republican, and we had a long-term drought, and in the Northwest, the power was produced by hydroelectric facilities, so drought means less uh, energy back in those days. So he, took the, he knew that we were going to have an energy shortage, so he issued an executive order to all state agencies to turn off all your lights at night, and then he got the, the Chamber of Commerce in Portland and other major cities to do the same thing, and our, our towns went pretty dark at night, and the public loved him. He was revered uh, because he not only had cut energy use, but it was a symbolic act uh, to make it clear. So then the public did the same thing. And what do you know? Lifestyles didn't change. We pretty much went about our business just like normal, but we had now understood we were more mindful of what we were doing uh, and we had no problem with the energy use that summer. So uh, we can make these changes, uh, and you can do it in your own homes, and you can do it uh, in your sanghas and the places you work. So that's one part that we're trying to motivate, that the, the Teachers Collaborative is trying to motivate you all to do, is to engage in your own homes, in your own lives, in your workplaces, but then also to realize that there needs to be systemic change institutional change. You alone aren't going to make the difference, but without your changes, we're not going to get there. And that's because our, the way our, our political system works, um, elected officials follow, they don't lead in our country and in many other democracies. We think they do. We're trying to elect leaders. The leaders are going to follow who, what they want people to do. And right now, there's a group of, of people and in industries that are that they're following that are not taking us on the right path. So it's got to be you they follow. And that requires you all to engage by modeling it, walking the talk, and then working with others collaboratively to, uh, to get engaged. There is a tremendous amount going on behind the scenes that people don't know about. Um, and uh, businesses especially, they're keeping their heads low. My organizations work with, uh, a lot of them don't want to, their names known, but I think this one will, and that's Nike. You all know what Nike is. It's an Oregon company. We help them analyze their entire economic value chain. Where does their raw materials come from? Where is it shipped to uh, and then turned into a, one part of a shoe that goes into the next part, et cetera, that eventually ends up in your, uh, on your feet? 
Uh, and what happens after you wear them, where do they go in terms of the waste? So we did an assessment of that, a bunch of graduate students doing this, lots of fun. Uh, and they realized uh, that they were at great risk of climate impacts and that they were contributing a lot to climate impacts. And so they've made some real fundamental changes in their business model, um, including a commitment to completely get off of fossil fuels. And there's a number of other corporations that are doing something very similar, but they're keeping their heads low. Some won't even talk about it. Some will talk about it, but only quietly. They're not putting it on their website. So that's why I'm optimistic that actually so much of our energy use and emissions is simply frivolous and wasted. And if we become mindful of what we're doing, we can make a difference there. And these are, there's, there's under, underneath it all, there's a lot of changes going on that if we can get it a push over the edge, I think we can make a lot of progress. So I want to suggest to you that what the, the Dharma suggests to us is it's absolutely right that uh, first we have to acknowledge the, the suffering that exists and the suffering within ourselves that have caused that external suffering. But the Dharma offers a pathway that we can follow at the same time. And I think if we do follow that, we have an opportunity to reduce climate change to manageable levels, but at the same time realize we are going to see some pretty serious impacts no matter what happens. So we also need to get prepared for that. Mm-hmm. And so the second goal that, of the teachers is to, in fact, in, uh, infuse the Dharma, these principles that I just read, into the public debate about climate change. With your help, the teachers' helps, and others, the public, the general public, decision makers, need to understand the root causes of these problems and the pathway to solutions. So I would encourage you to talk about these issues. Uh, you can use Dharma language or you can use mainstream language. Um, and if uh, when you see somebody not worrying at all uh, about how they might be contributing to climate change, ask them to take a breath and become aware of their connection with everything, that they don't exist except for these processes. And those kind of simple steps often help people uh, become much more aware. Other mm-hmm. thoughts or questions at this point in time? And uh, Maybe I'd like to just add a, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, that statement um, you can see online and, uh, and sign your name if you, if you want to. Uh, you go to oneearthsangha.org. Uh, one, either the number one or spelled out either way. Um, I just wrote an article for the the, Huffing, for the Huffington Post uh, went in yesterday. Uh, and the link is in there too, um, and uh, you can just Google my name in uh, Huffington Post. It's uh, inspiration and joy amidst suffering and loss. Then I, I want to ask you maybe to address something as well. Um, you know, when when you when you read it, um, there's I I felt in myself a couple of different responses that are familiar. One is, oh my goodness, this is really heavy. And another is, um, how could the population shift in thinking to the point where we say yes? 
we all are on the same team. Um, and uh, because what I, what I really got from both your presentation at the, uh, the teacher's conference and, and your book is a sense of um, um, mm, cautious optimism in the possibilities. And in fact, your cautious optimism has, has given me, has rubbed off a bit on me, how to transmit that so that it starts to shift the consciousness. And this is something that I also want to mention. Bob has been working with, uh, with, the, um, with the White House and the administration to help them shift the, the narrative on climate change so it's not something that either people feel despairing or turn off or turn the other way, but to sh- make that shift in consciousness. So uh, how... How do you see that happening? Do you see that happening? And, and uh, how, do, how do you see uh, the trajectory of that? Well, those are excellent questions, and there's not an easy answer to them, uh, and no simple solution, obviously. But uh, I think one of the, the ways to, uh, it, to, to shift the consciousness and, is to talk about the things that we are doing uh, rather than just doing them themselves. Talk about what you're doing in your household as you become more mindful or in your business uh, uh, and, and shine the light on, on the positive changes we're making. And that builds momentum. Uh, people are, well, I can do that. I, I, that's not too difficult. I can do that too. Um, uh, and or, just like I was trying to describe through describing Nike, to realize that there actually is a lot going on. We are making some changes. It's, you know, it's hard to see. It's fuzzy. Um, especially within all the other things you hear all you know on the 24-hour news cycle, you got to fill it with a lot of stuff. So it, it, it seems like uh, all we get is bad news. But there's a lot going on. Um, uh, even in China, we hear this thing. Well, even if we make changes here, we you know China is still generating a lot of emissions, and that's true. First, remember that about 50 to 60 percent of China's emissions are for what? They're for us. We have simply pushed our emissions over there by pushing manufacturing to China. Uh, and so, uh, and they do use very dirty coal and cheap coal-fired power plants. Um, so, uh, so that means that it still, in many ways, comes back to us. And so one thing you can do again is become mindful even of your consumption. When you go to the store... Uh, ask yourself, do I really need this product? Because every product you buy has a long, often deep uh, energy value chain, if you will. A lot of energy went into, and therefore a lot of emissions were produced trying to produce these things. So the more local you can buy it, the more well, less packaging, more recyc- recyclable and reusable, et cetera. And then shine the light on that. Talk about that. Share it with other people. You know, get get the sangha engaged to highlight that, and then the sangha can join with others and go talk to the city council and local business associations, etc. Say, here's what we're doing. Here's what we'd like you to do. So I think it's really a, 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 a many many steps. There's no silver bullet, but it really is about sharing the truth about what we're doing uh, all the time. And one thing I, I, I have noticed lately is, uh, 
at least Barbara Boxer heading up this very strong push. We're going to um, uh, do what we can to make a shift in consciousness around businesses, saying this is really good for for everybody to uh, to keep this in mind. But uh, yeah, it's it's not going to happen overnight, and it means everybody's got to hold it in their consciousness in a, in a different way. So any questions, comments? Yeah. Um, I have two very different comments. One, like you, I'm very fortunate to have solar energy in my house, and my, my bill, in fact, is $75 a year for both a studio and my house. Um, that said, when, when I was very young, I always had this idea that I was going to have a solar house, and I always thought it would be a passive solar house, and I, I came very close I had a Victorian house that had a porch and I was going to put in vents and so forth. It didn't happen because I moved, but I did end up with um, a solar, a non-passive solar house. I, I, do, I don't really understand how it works. I mean, what I've heard is that um, I'm, still, I'm still using uh, dirty coal because that's what generates energy. Um, So I would like you to comment on that. On the flip side, you know, as you talk about sort of expanding, um, you know, my my influence in people around me, um, I realize that there are some 30 people in my immediate family, and um, I'm a landlord, so I have some 25 people who live in my places that I can influence um, with specific things of, you know, not flushing every time, turning out lights, um, you know, utilizing the, uh, you know, putting in energy um, uh Thermostats that are on a that are on a um, schedule like I have in my house and in my studio. So, two things: one, it's great I can influence certainly a large uh, body of people, but I would like to hear about um, the the coal aspect of having solar. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what they're talking about. They may have used coal to generate the materials that made the solar system. Um, themselves, the actual physical part of it, uh, or it could be that it's the backup system. Your 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 energy, your solar system isn't producing energy all the time. So yeah, I'm still be, on the grid. Right, still on the grid. So in the evenings, as an example, uh, you might be uh, if your system's not hydro or some other. But as we scale that up, as more and more and other renewables, and the solar's not the only one. I think we can find ways to balance out the system. We've seen it in other countries, uh, Germany is actually the largest um, solar user in all of Europe. And Germany's sort of a lot like Oregon, right? It's cloudy and rainy a lot there. And yet they're doing very, very well. Uh, and, uh, and they're struggling with even how the grid can work to absorb that much renewable energy as we are here in the Pacific Northwest. So I think these are transition issues for the most part that we'll have to work our way through. Um, but yeah, so if, you're, if, if you have a... Uh, solar is not like a steady a baseload energy system, so it doesn't go on, you know, in the in the evenings at, uh, or cloudy. You know, it's not worked quite as well in 
real big rainstorms, et cetera. But um, so there are those issues that are there, but these are transition issues. We have to just keep at it. Um, <laughs> okay. I, uh, there are a couple of international issues. One is that a lot of a lot of the major pollution around the world is out of the control of either you know the head of a corporation like Nike or a democratic government. I mean, you know, you look at Cairo or Tehran or Bangkok or <laughs> Beijing. The pollution from automobiles is overwhelming, for example, and this is not something that can be controlled by government or, you know, a movement of people or whatever. And the other thing is that there are a lot of poor people in the world and they want these consumer items from China. So how does that relate to what can we do about that? Good questions. Well, I can only say that I've been to two of the UN climate summits. And in both of those, what I see very clearly in here is the rest of the world is waiting for the U.S. to act. Um, and not only because of the symbolic nature of it, but because the size of our economy really determines a lot of things. So if we actually get serious, now the president did release the first presidential climate plan ever in July. You might have heard about it. Um, it's a, a good start. It's not earth-shattering. Um, but it's the first time a, a, a U.S. president have ever, ever done that. Uh, if we actually can do a, you know, go up, scale that up by, by 100% or 50% and then get the U.S. Congress to act also in many ways, which we're not going to get right now but could, we will see other countries act also. Uh, we heard that time and again at all the – if you're not going to do anything, why would we? Because our economies are dependent on yours in so many ways. At the same time, there is negotiations going on now. I think we will start seeing some agreements just within two or three countries, including the U.S. The U.S. is working with China and a few others. Uh, so I think there's, those are going to be smaller scale uh, agreements. But, um, but the bigger issue, again, is uh, it's easy for us. I'm not suggesting this is what you're doing at all, but it's very easy for us to say, well, we don't need to do anything because others aren't doing anything. Uh, and all we can do is control what we can control, which is our own emissions, our own uh, household and family, and then community and organizational and state, uh, et cetera. Once we get that under control, once we realize that that's the power we have, then we have to see if organically, if you will, or because of the nature of the interconnected nature of the economies, these things will fall together. You're, wait, you got to uh, hold on a second. There was uh, something a professor at Berkeley, Professor David Roland Holst, had said in, um, in California when they were going to limit um, you know, energy conservation for big corporations. The corporations were kicking and screaming and saying, if you try to, um, you know, make us comply with all these energy regulations. We're going to just not be competitive. And um, 
when they finally pushed it through anyway, the corporations actually saved a lot of money by implementing all these energy-saving um, technologies. So, you know, maybe the United States can lead the way and show the rest of the world that you can enrich your country by, um, you know, being more energy conscious. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, let me ask you all a question. How many of you really like to make a big change in your behavior? Not many of us, right? So it's a natural response. The first thing you get from any kind of regulation is, oh, no, don't do that. You know, it's a big, it, it, you have to change your habits. Some people will lose power. Some people gain power. All those issues are there. So any change, we see that every time business stands up and says the entire economy is going to collapse, et cetera, et cetera. It never happens. Um, uh, that's not to say that some regulations are smart and some are dumb. Of course they are. Uh, and, and that we're going to have to learn through the process. We're going to make mistakes, et cetera. And that regulations are not the only tool. There's a lot of, but, but, uh, mostly what we're going to be finding is we'll become more efficient. We will save more money and it will spur innovation. That's what you really find through what uh, the research shows unequivocally when there is regulation, it spurs more innovation in other ways. Uh, and uh, and I, so I, I don't really worry about it, but we have to go through that dance. That's just the political dance we go through whenever there's regulations proposed. Uh, wrap up so um, so we can get out of here on time. So I, and I just want to uh, thank you first for all the work that you're doing and uh, all the impact that you're having in our Dharma community. Uh, and all the work that you're doing uh, with Washington, and actually this last week uh, Bob was in uh, was working with San Francisco. He was at the uh, city uh, offices uh, today with the San Francisco uh, government, city government, and Oakland uh, as well. He's hitting the whole Bay Area with the Oakland city government today, and t- looking at um, how. Uh, how cities would deal um, in a resilient way when things uh, do start getting more and more difficult. So uh, this guy's working overtime. Uh, I know he's, I, th- I sometimes think that I'm busy, but when I look at his schedule, it's like, you know, oh, uh, I, I hope you're taking care of yourself and finding some balance in there as well. And uh, really inspired by everything that you do. And the, the the last thing that I uh, that just came to my mind is a a study that I, I uh, that happened uh, quite a while ago. I think Stanford did it that said that uh, what is needed for a shift in a new way of looking at things is a seven percent shift in the population. That you don't have to convince everybody that when there's a seven percent shift that seems to be the tipping point, then there's a new way of thinking is, is more uh, in vogue and accepted. And uh, so um, we can be part of that. It's not like you have to change the whole world. Just in your own commitment, it starts to have its rippling effect. And uh, 7% is, is not impossible. Let me just say one quick word about that and, and to summarize. But I, I think this is actually an incredibly exciting time to be alive. We have this, this, this scary thing out there um, that will cause suffering, but it's the suffering that can trigger a new way of being. And I think it's an exciting time, and we have tremendous opportunities. And I think mindfulness, being aware of what we're doing and our thoughts, 
and our motivations is really the key to this. And it's a wonderful opportunity to grow mindfulness in many, many other people. And not everybody has to do it. We just have to get enough, and you're the leaders, you know, and other Sangha members, to just trigger a real fundamental change. So I, I just encourage you all to sort of stay with it, and, and uh, uh, there'll be ups and downs, but stay committed, and uh, I think we'll, uh, we'll make this. So mm-hmm. thank you all. And, and that was the gist of uh, the article that I wrote, that uh, just like in practice, when you go on a retreat and you go through some really hard times, and it's not that they're a mistake, they are the, the actual um, initiation passageway to a deeper awakening. And in the same way, we are um, having this opportunity now, this awakening of humanity, because uh, suffering is staring us in the face, and it, suffering shakes us out of our complacency and starts um, waking us up to a new way of acting and being. So I do see this in my more, um, in my bigger perspective moments that this is uh, a call to awakening. Um, So thanks for being part of that. And uh, let's just close with a brief loving kindness. Maybe for a moment feel how much you love this planet and are grateful for the life that you have and that it sustains. And out of that gratitude, connecting with your intention to do your part to be as conscious as you can and support its flourishing And sending metta to yourself, to all beings in all directions, and to this uh, miraculous earth that we live on, live in, live on. May there be harmony, health. wisdom, love, peace. May all beings be happy and free. And may this planet feel the caring of all who live on it. Thanks, Bob. Thanks. Have a good week. See you next week. Oh, yeah. There are four copies of, of Bob's book.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.